Matthew was a tax collector. And a tax collector was about as low as you can possibly get in the Jewish society. Because as you recall from history, the Jews were ruled by Rome. And they were not fond of Rome. Rome came in, took over their land, and said, you can worship your God and you can do all the type of things you want to do, but here are the rules. You're going to pay taxes and you're going to follow our rule of law and you're going to be submissive to us because we are your masters, we are your rulers. And it wasn't only the fact that the promised land given to the Jews was now being conquered and controlled by Rome and that they had to submit and pay taxes and all of these things, but it was also the fact that Rome said that their emperor, right, Caesar, was a god. And they did not believe and trust and follow after the God of the Bible. And, and so the Roman government and the Jews were always in conflict with one another. Well, what Rome did was they would hire and they would uh, raise up tax collectors that were indigenous to the area. So Matthew is a Jew, and he was hired to be a tax collector. And here's how it worked. Rome said, we want this percentage. Here's how much we want. But you have the freedom to upcharge your own people. You can raise the taxes. You will have the Roman guard by your side and the soldiers so that if anybody doesn't want to pay, you're going to have the full weight of the Roman guard by your side. And so tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They betrayed their own people. They were now in allegiance with Rome. They were robbing their own people by raising taxes and taking money off the top. And so they were really wealthy. They were outcasted from society because they were viewed as traitors. And this is who Matthew is. Jesus comes and finds and meets Matthew. It's in the Sea of Galilee near around Capernaum. And, and he has this interaction with Matthew. And he invites Matthew to be one of the 12 disciples. Imagine how scandalous that is. He's the lowest of the low. Nobody wants to associate, no self-respecting Jew would ever associate with a tax collector. And Jesus invites him to be a part of his disciples. And he forgives him. And so Matthew is the person that writes this letter, not just to anyone, though it's accessible to all people, but his target audience is the Jews. He's writing to his own people. Who better to tell the story of Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace than Matthew? Matthew, who has been betrayed by them, and he himself betrayed his own people, but has come to experience the grace and the mercy and the incredible forgiveness of Jesus Christ, who has not only forgiven Matthew's past, but also his future. And so he comes to his own people, who probably treated him horribly, doesn't have a lot of friends in that regard. And he comes to them and he says, I want you to see what I have been privileged to see. That Jesus is in fact the son of man. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. He is the king that was promised. He didn't come in like we expected to throw Rome out and to, to reestablish the kingdom in this little country. He, he actually came in and he said, I'm going to forgive your sins and establish my kingdom over the whole world. So he writes this letter. It's very, uh, if you read the letter and you kind of analyze, you can see a lot of Jewish themes. He connects a lot of his letter to the Old Testament and prophecies that are being fulfilled through Christ. And he comes this evening in Matthew 18 and he says, here's what I want you to see. We have been waiting for a Messiah, for a king. But he was much different than we expected. 
And he's much better than we expected. He comes with forgiveness. The power that Christ brings is forgiveness for all of your debts, all of your burden, all of your sins and your flaws. He comes and he brings and he wipes it away. He absolves it if you look at him in faith. And so that's the context, and it helps you to understand a little bit of his heart and how he's viewing the writing of this story as he's retelling what happened. He wants them to see who Jesus truly is. And he wants them to see this. If you come to look at Jesus and you realize the depth of his forgiveness to you, who are you to put limits on your forgiveness? That's the whole point of what he's writing here. Look what he says in in verse 21. Peter came up to him and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are retelling the story in the life of Christ, it seems like it's always Peter, right? He's always the one asking questions, whether they're all the questions that he has, or whether the other disciples are like, hey, Peter, will you go ask Jesus this? He's always coming up and asking questions. And this time he comes up, he has this in his head. They've probably been talking about it. They're wondering, okay, how many times are we supposed to forgive people that offend us, that hurt us, that sin against us? Is, is it seven times? And you may read that, and you may be like, seven times? Like, for the whole, your whole lifetime? I mean, we sin against each other in relationship as friends or, or parents and children or, or, or with your spouse. Your church will sin against you more than seven times in your lifetime. I mean, if it's only seven times, you're probably thinking to yourself, man, I'm not going to have a lot of friends. <laughs> I'm not going to have a lot of people in my life because you're going to hit seven pretty quickly. And we have to be really careful, I think, when we read Scripture because we'll look at Peter and we'll look at others and we'll say, seven times? Like, that seems like a kind of small number. Maybe like 20 or 30 or 50, but seven times. Because we like to think of ourselves better than we are in reality, Right? And especially in regards to forgiveness, we like to assume that we're forgiving. We're pretty forgiving people. Because we, it's easy for us to forgive someone if it doesn't really affect us that much, right? It's easy to forgive if it's kind of trivial. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was talking to uh, this student. He was a sophomore. His name's Matt. And we're talking, catching up on the week. And I see in the distance this, this girl that's coming up. And she was a freshman. She looks so nervous. So she's walking over. She has a Red Bull in her hand. I was like, maybe she drank too many, and she's on the downslope here. But she's coming over, and uh, she's, you know, real nervous. She comes up, and she says, hi, SR to interrupt. And I was like, hey, what's up? And she, she says, uh, Matt, I just wanted to give this to you. And it's a Red Bull. And he looks at me, and he looks at her, and he's, like, so confused. He's like, okay. So he takes it, and he goes, why are you giving me a Red Bull? And she goes, uh, well, uh, I just, I've been really nervous to tell you this, but I just wanted you to know I'm sorry. I, I mean, I've been thinking about it all week. I, I, I felt like what I said last week was mean, and, and so I know you love Red Bull, so I wanted to get you a Red Bull. And, and he's holding the Red Bull, and he looks at her, and he looks at me, and he's really confused, and he goes, what are you talking about? She goes, oh, last week when I said, and he goes, oh, I forgot about that two minutes later. And she's like, Oh, because I've been thinking about it all week, and I've been so nervous, but I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm sorry, and I just wanted to know that you were going to forgive me. And see, see, for him, it wasn't very hard to forgive her because it 
didn't affect him. He forgot about it two minutes later. I mean, he got a free Red Bull out of it, so he liked it. But he was like, I mean, yeah, sure, I'll forgive you. I don't even really remember what you said, and it doesn't really affect me. See, it's easy for us to forgive, right, when it's trivial or when we forget it after two minutes or a day or doesn't really affect us that much. But when somebody really breaks our trust, when they really hurt us, when they consistently do the same thing over and over and over and over again and they keep asking for forgiveness, that's when forgiveness gets difficult. That's where forgiveness gets especially hard. And Peter comes here actually quite generous in his estimation of how often we should forgive each other. And he says, should we forgive each other seven times? Because he spent time with Jesus. He knows that Jesus is really merciful. He's He's very forgiving and compassionate. And so he assumes that it's probably more than double what was standard. See, the rabbis and the scholars of the day would say that you never forgive somebody more than three times. Somebody sins against you three times. Once you hit four, it's over, done. Relationship is gone. And so Peter's assuming with Jesus, it's probably more, right? I mean, he's probably at least six. Let's say seven. Seven sounds good. So he's actually being generous in his estimation of how often you should forgive somebody that really sins against you. And, and Jesus' response is seven times. How about 77 times? Or 70 times seven, depending on your translation. See, Jesus is not saying, okay, here's how it works. It's not three, it's not seven, but it's actually 77. That's the magical number. That's how many times you forgive somebody. That's the tally of forgiveness, right? How weird would this be? You go over to your friend's house, and there's a bunch of names on their refrigerator. And there's a bunch of check marks by the name. And you're like, what in the world? And you're like, what is this? My name's up there. You're like, yep, you're at 68. You got a few more. Once you hit 77, game over. And you're, I mean, right? Is it, are we supposed to have, like, download an app, like a, a tally of forgiveness app? And you're like, oh. Up to 16, you're going to be climbing quickly with this one. You know, it's not a tally of forgiveness. Jesus is not saying it's not three, it's not seven, it's 77. He's, he's saying there is actually no quota. It's unlimited forgiveness. He's tying it, the allusion is to Genesis 4, where there's this uh, re- retelling of, of what's happening in the history of the world, and, and you hear Cain, and, and you hear this about this person, Lamech. And Lamech was known to be unlimited in his vindictiveness. He was full of vengeance, and it it would never cease. I mean, Cain killed his brother, but in comparison to Lamech, no comparison whatsoever. Here's what it says in verse 24. If Cain is avenged seven times for Lamech, it's 77. See, what Genesis, the writer of Genesis, Moses is saying is his vengeance was unlimited. In comparison to Cain, who killed his own brother, Lamech is another level. He is full of vengeance. And Jesus is making this comparison. They would have understood this. Jesus is saying it's not three, it's not seven. There's actually no number. There's no quota for forgiveness. If you're a disciple and follower of Christ, if you have been forgiven, then guess what? The forgiveness that you are to have for others is unlimited. It doesn't matter how they've offended you. It doesn't matter if you think they deserve your forgiveness. It doesn't matter if they've done the same thing over and over and over again for months or years. 
It doesn't matter if it seems really hard. It doesn't matter if you think that if you forgive them, you're giving them license to continue in what they've been doing. Jesus says, no conditions. Forgiveness is to be unlimited, consistent, always the same. Someone sins against you, the response is forgiveness. And I love this about Jesus. He does this all the time. He tells a story. Jesus doesn't walk around and just say, okay, I'm going to tell you truth. Prepare, open up your mind. Here are the facts. Got it, lodge it in your head. Now on to the next one. He consistently does this, right? People ask him a question and he'll say, let me tell you a story. Or he'll say, listen, it's not seven, it's 77. Now let me tell you a story. The reason that Jesus does this is because truth is not only to be understood mentally, it's also to be felt. We've been talking about that tonight. See, we come together on Sunday evening, and you may, you may say, you know, I come for the sermon, or I come for the music, or I come because I want to take communion. But see, the entirety of the service is important, from call to worship to benediction, and it's, it's, it's put together prayerfully so that you not only absorb facts mentally, that you not only cognitively come to understand truth, but that you also feel it. That's why we sing to God. We're meant to feel the truth of the words that we're seeing. That's why we come together and pray. That's why we want to listen to each other, to be encouraged by the words and, that we're singing over each other. That's why when we talk about communion, we don't just talk about it. We actually get up and come down and taste. We use our senses to feel the truth of God's promises. And so Jesus here is doing the same thing. He's saying, okay, you understand what I'm saying. I'm telling you that forgiveness is to be unlimited, but in order for you to really feel it, I want to tell you a story. So what I want to do is I want to tell you a story that is in line with what Jesus tells, but it's a modern equivalent. And so I've taken a little creative license, and I've taken some of the things in here like talents and denarii, and, and I've, I've made them into our modern equivalent. So I'm going to use money um, and what the equivalent of what Jesus is saying would be. And I want you to feel the story. There's going to be no slides. There'll be nothing, no distractions. So if you have to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. If you just want to think about it, process it. I want you to imagine this story. Play it in your head like a movie. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. So here's what he says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a venture capitalist who had a large firm. He's really well known all over the world. He's well known because he has a lot of accounts. He's very good at extending and investing his money. But the reason his firm is really well known is because he's very disciplined. He invests in good ideas and he handles his accounts well. And so the boss, the CEO of this firm is sitting down one day and he early in the morning is sitting at his desk and he go, starts to go through his accounts and he realizes that they're a little off. And so he, he knows that he has to settle some of his accounts. And so he looks at his accounts and he realizes one of the companies that he's been investing in for years, it's long overdue in its payments and it's time to settle. And so he calls in his account director and he says, I, I need you to call Sam. I need you to ask Sam to come on over. We're going to have to have a conversation. And so his account director calls Sam and, and Sam gets a call in the morning. He takes an Uber over, 
And he comes, before, he comes up to the high rise, and as he walks in, he knows exactly what is about to happen. Because you see, Sam had a brilliant idea. Sam had an idea that not only was brilliant in his mind, but many other people thought it was brilliant. They thought it was an idea that could actually change the world, including the CEO of this firm. And so he took out this large investment, but the problem was is that the idea did not go the way that he imagined. He had setback after setback, so he took out loan after loan and kept eating up all of his capital until he got in this place where he has a massive debt. And he knows that it's going to be time to pay here soon. And so he's processing in his head. You can imagine as he's walking into the high rise and he's thinking, I, I'm pretty sure I know what's going to happen here, but what am I going to say? How am I going to convince him to give me more time? How am I going to convince him to, to be patient? And, and so he comes up to the security guard. The security guard knows who he is. He says, come on through. And he gets to the elevator and clicks on the elevator. He walks in the elevator, hits one of the top floors. And as the elevator's going up, you know, you could, his body is like tensing up. The sweat's beginning to kind of pour down the side of his brow. And he's just processing this. head. what am I going to say? He walks out of the elevator, the account director is standing right there, and he says, Sam, you need to come with me. And it just feels different in the room now. It, it used to be full of joy as he would come in and, and update on the company, and it feels different. And he walks into the back of the office, into the corner, and he would normally be greeted with a hug and, and say, hey, Sam, sit down, tell me, give me the update on the company. But this time the boss is sitting in his chair, and he's looking out the window, and there's no small talk. He turns over to Sam and he says, Sam, it's time to pay back your debt. I mean, it's long overdue. This has been years and years and years and you've been making a lot of excuses and it's time for us to settle. And Sam looks at him and he says, I, I can't settle. I, I don't have any of that money. I mean, we have a little bit, but there's no, I mean, there's no way we could pay this off. If you you know, just give us a little bit more time. And the boss shakes his head and he says, Sam, we have to settle now. And if you can't pay me back, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take your savings. I'm going to take your house. We're going to take your car. We're going to take your college fund. We're going to sell your company. We're going to sell every asset associated with you and your company so we can actually recoup a little bit of the loss here because you owe us $7 billion. $7 billion, Sam. And we need to make some of this money back to keep our, our books in order and to keep the firm going forward. And at that moment, Sam loses it. He falls to the ground. The tension in his body, tears are streaming down his face. I mean, he's literally on his hands and knees. And he looks up. He can barely breathe as he's trying to get words out. And, and it, literally a pool is dropping to the floor with his tears. And he says, that it's going to crush me. It's going to break me. Can you just be patient with me? I, I know we can get this off the ground. It's going to make the money back. It's going to take a long time, but I'm going to pay you back everything. And the boss is looking at him, and he, he, he feels pity and compassion on Sam because he knows how it's going to affect him and his family and all the workers and the company. And he does something really unexpected. He says, Sam, we're going to absolve your debt. You don't have to carry the burden anymore. It's over. It's done. Sam, still, he's still trying to process what just happened. He says, wait, excuse me? He says, the debt is gone. 
Sam jumps up to his feet. He grabs a boss, squeezes him as hard as he can. He's kissing him on the cheek. He keeps saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to pay you over and over and over again. The boss is getting real uncomfortable. So he tells the account director to come in. The account director, he's like, you know. So he's saying thank you. He's like, pull him apart. The account director says, come with me. And he's like, still trying. He's like, bye, Sam. You know, you're welcome. And he goes out the door. He, he, he's pulling his hair. He's like, I, I can't believe what just happened. He gets into the elevator I mean, he's like, he's like hyperventilating because of the joy that he feels at the debt, the burden that he's been carrying for years and years and years. He knew he could never pay it back, $7 billion. He gets out of the elevator. He gets back in his Uber. This time, he doesn't have to do the Uber pool. He just does a normal one. Heads back over to the office, and he sits down at his desk, and he's still in shock. And he looks, starts looking at the business and thinking about it with fresh eyes, and he calls in Mike. He says, Mike, I need you to come in here. Mike comes and sits down and he says, Mike, you owe me $11,000. Mike says, yeah, I know. I mean, I've been here for four months. We had an agreement, right? Contractor, I'm working on this product for you. It's going to take a little bit more time. He says, no, no, Mike, you need to pay it right now. Well, see, Mike doesn't have any family. He doesn't have any opportunity to pay that. He has no money to his name. He's leveraged everything to produce this aspect, this little intricacy to the business. And this loan, there's no, $11,000 to Mike is a lot of money. You can't pay it back. He says, Sam, I, I can't pay that back. He says, sorry, Mike, if you can't pay it back, we're going to file a lawsuit. You're fired. We're going to freeze all of your assets. We're going to sell your idea. And I'm going to be taking everything to, to recoup this money. And Mike loses it. He falls down as well, starts crying. He says, Sam, just give me a little patience. It's only been four months. I, it's $11,000. I know it's a lot of money, but I'm going to pay you back. And Sam says, no, it's done. Security guard, take him out. We're going to file lawsuits. The other employees have been listening. They heard what happens as Mike walks out. He takes this little lunchbox and, you know, he takes his stuff and he goes out, tears streaming down his face. What am I going to do now? And so the employees begin to talk and he said, what is up with Sam? Why don't we go to the firm and let them know what happened? And so they go back. One of the employees goes up. He goes to the reception desk. And he says, I, can, I, can I talk to the CEO? And why what it's about, and he explains what just happened at the office, and so the account director takes him in, and he shares with the CEO, here's what just happened in the office, Sam just fired Mike over $11,000, I mean, it was really, un there's no mercy in that, and Mike's only been there for four months, and so he tells the account director, call Sam, get him over here right now, Sam comes back over, except the elevator, comes in, he's feeling good, he walks in the door, he says, what's up, man, he says, sit down, sits down, and this time it, it, he can feel that there's something off. And the boss says, you wicked and ungrateful man. I just absolved $7 billion in debt. You were on the floor crying, tears streaming down your face. I knew how it would break you and your family. And in compassion and pity towards you, I removed your debt, done, over with, and immediately after you went back to your place of work, you called in one of your employees who owed $11,000 and you fired him and you're filing a lawsuit to freeze and take his assets. Who do you think you are? Are you kidding me? Sam tries to defend himself. He says, no, no, no. It's all done. We're taking everything from you. Your business, your house, your car, your savings, your college fund, it's all being taken because you didn't understand that if you've been forgiven that level of 
debt? Who are you to, to hold all these small debts of others over their head and judge them? And then Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother in your heart. See, that's the story that Jesus tells. And you're meant to feel it. You're meant to feel the weight of the debt that you have been absolved of before Christ because of his payment and how ridiculous it is for us to be unwilling to forgive others that hold these $11,000 debts in our life when we've been forgiven $7 billion. You see, grace not only affords forgiveness, grace mandates forgiveness. See, we, we use forgiveness a lot of times like uh, candy, you know? It's like this treat that we're going to pass out to somebody if they say pretty please. A lot of times. They really beg. They really ask. They really deserve it. Then we'll forgive them. And we're going to let them know that we're going to forgive them. I just want you to know that I'm forgiving you again. I just want you to know that I'm going to really try to forgive you. We've all said these things in our relationships, right? And we have relationships in our life where we have a really hard time forgiving at all. Maybe we think to ourselves, I, I can't forgive this person. I, I mean, the offense, the way that they've hurt me, the trust that they've broken between us, there's no way I could forgive them. Or maybe we think, I, I have forgiven them many times, feels like 77 times, and it just keeps happening I can't continue to forgive them. And if I continue to forgive them, it's probably just going to continue to give them license to feel like they can just keep doing it. Maybe there's some offenses and some sin that people have inflicted upon us where we just don't know if it's possible for us to forgive. You see, Jesus never claims to us that forgiveness is easy. It's not easy. He models that. The route to forgiveness is a really costly route. Jesus didn't just come down and he didn't just say, listen, everybody, I want you to know this. People write it down so people in 2016 can hear this as well. You're forgiven. He went to the cross. He was tortured and humiliated for our forgiveness. He took great pain that was inflicted upon him for our sake. See, forgiveness has cost. It's not easy. But our sin was so great. Our debt was so great. It's like $7 billion, something that no way in our lifetime or a hundred lifetimes could we ever pay off. And yet Jesus took that on himself for us, even when we didn't even ask him to take it. We wanted nothing to do with him. We rejected God. We have, many times over, we have doubted God. We have pushed him away. It doesn't matter where you are in your relationship with God. Maybe you're here and you're searching and you're kind of questioning and you're processing it. And you, you resonate with that. Yeah, the large part of my life, I've been distancing myself from God. I've been doubting him. I've been pushing him away. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you still know many days and many times we are pushing him away and we are doubting him and we are saying, yeah, I know God, but I'm, I'm doing this. See, our debt is so heavy. It is so large. And yet Christ took it for us. He paid the penalty of our debt. And the problem is, what's difficult for us when we read passages like this, is that we don't really absorb 
how offensive our sin and our rejection and our rebellion is to God. God is a pure, all good, incorruptible, and yet we are flawed, we are impure, and we are full of corruption. And if you have something pure, you can't even put one little drop of impurity in it because what will happen? It will corrupt the whole thing. And yet, God made a way. He made a way by sending Christ to take our sin and our shame and pay the penalty that deserved, which was death. And yet, we, we don't really sense sometimes how actually rotten we are. We don't want to talk about it because it's kind of depressing. I want to read you a very quick excerpt from a book called Unapologetic by Francis Spufford. It's a, it's a great book. He says this. This is challenging words. He says, if you won't hear the bad news about yourself, you can't know yourself. You condemn yourself to the maintenance of an exhausting illusion, a false front to yourself which keeps out doubt and with it hope, change, nourishment, breath, life. If you won't hear the bad news, you can't begin to hear the good news about yourself either. And you'll do harm. You'll be pumped up with the false confidence of virtue. And you'll think it gives you license and a large share of all the cruelties in the world will follow. For evil done knowingly is rather rare compared to the evil done by people who are sure that they themselves are good and that the evil is hatefully concentrated in some other person, some other person who makes your flesh creep because they have become exactly as unbearable, as creepy, as disgusting as you fear the mess would be beneath your own mask of virtue if you ever dared to look at it. That line where he says, if you won't hear the bad news, you can't begin to hear the good news about yourself either. See, here's the good news. The good news is that when you begin to feel the weight of your sin and your offense to God, how you have sinned against him, you come face to face with the good news, which is that God looked at you with compassion. He's the CEO that looked at you with your $7 billion debt as we're on the floor crying before him, and he says, you're forgiven. You're absolved because my son has gone. I have gone to the cross. I have paid the penalty of your sin. Your sin deserved death and complete separation from me, and yet I made a way. I made a payment for you so that it would be wiped away and done with. It's over. It's done with. We rise to our feet and we thank him and we hug him and then sometimes what we do is we get back in the elevator, we go down, we go back into life and then we look at all the little debts and all the little ways other people have sinned against us and we say, you need to pay it back. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to absolve you of that. You have to pay it back. And the comparison here that Jesus is making to us is that how could we ever restrict forgiveness from anyone else in our life, regardless of what they have done to us, if we have been forgiven a debt that is so huge, we could never, ever pay it back. See, that's the question. How could we ever put limits on forgiveness? And Jesus makes it very clear that forgiveness is not easy, it's costly, but it is our call. And one of the most off-putting things ever is when we claim to have received such great forgiveness from Christ and then we turn around and we hold everybody else's debts over their head. It reveals to us that maybe we have a misunderstanding of God's grace and really the debt that we owed him that he forgave us. 
You see, we are to be people of unlimited forgiveness regardless of the offense, regardless of how hard it is. Regardless of whether or not we think they deserve our forgiveness, we're to be people of forgiveness. We are not to put limits, and it won't be easy. But we are to be people of forgiveness because we have been forgiven such a large debt. Because grace affords forgiveness, and it mandates it for us as the people of God. Let's pray.